Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today in an exclusive interview, U.S. Senate candidate Matt Dolan discusses how a failed bid to succeed Rob Portman in the last election springboarded his effort to unseat Sherrod Brown in the upcoming one. Also this morning, we often hear pleas for blood donors to meet the needs of surgery patients or the victims of accidents and natural disasters. But there's also a critical and ongoing need for plasma donors for an equally important reason. We'll explain. And travel on a budget looks to be the theme of this year's summer vacation season. Airbnb is responding to this trend with the launch of their redesigned rooms experience. We'll take a closer look. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, May 15th, 2023. Here is a story that is perfect to set you in the right frame of mind as you roll out of bed this morning and get ready to resume another week of, you know, the daily grind, right? A senior IT worker for IBM in Great Britain who has been on sick leave since 2008 has now sued the tech giant for discrimination because he hasn't been given a pay raise. <laughs> I I kid you not, Ian Clifford uh, has been on sick leave since 2008. He's still employed, technically, but he's been on sick leave since 2008, claimed he was the victim of, uh, of disability discrimination by IBM, because his salary had not been increased in the 15 years that he has been off work. <laughs> he's been on paid leave for 15 years, and now he's upset because he has not been given a raise. Uh, according to the British newspaper, The Telegraph, under the IBM health plan, uh, the IT specialist receives more than 54,000 pounds a year, or roughly a salary of $67,500. That is his annual salary, and he is guaranteed to receive that salary until he is age 65, um, which adds up to, I mean, you can do the math, um, but it adds up to about a million and a half pounds or roughly... What is that? Two million dollars, something like that. But he's complaining <laughs> because he hasn't gotten a raise in the 15 years he's been on six leave. Oh, I tell you what, that's that is that's uh, that's just taking advantage of <laughs> that. Just that's just taking advantage. <laughs> oh my goodness! <clears throat> so, what do you think about that? <clears throat> you can either laugh or you can get angry. Uh, it's just sad, really. He'll probably win his suit. He probably will, especially in Great Britain. That's a whole different, different thing. Uh, here's something that uh, is kind of interesting, and I don't know if this has gone viral yet, but I'm sure that it will. A TikToker uh, who goes by the handle Lisa Major 1053 said she was behind a Tesla in the drive-thru of the local McDonald's, and I don't know where this is, but she was in the McDonald's drive-thru when the Tesla in front of her died. Apparently, the electric vehicle ran out of charge, and the owner then could not get it into gear so that it could be pushed out of the way. So, the car's dead. It's sitting there in the drive-thru, can't move. Uh, in the video, a McDonald's employee can be seen warning the other customers in line uh, one viewer commented that the Tesla owner should have paid for everyone's order that got stuck behind him uh, as a result. And I bring this up because I'm guessing that this is going to go viral and everybody's going to uh, going to say, oh, here's another reason why you should never own an electric vehicle. And is, but it's not like a Tesla or any other electric vehicle is going to die unexpectedly that you don't know that it's coming. I mean, the car, just like your gas-powered vehicle, gives you plenty of warning when you're running low. Uh, it's not like you have to guess. So this idiot who ran 
his electric car to the point of the battery dying out. Um, (laughs) If he'd been driving a a gas vehicle and you ignore the, you know, little warning light that you're almost out, it could have been a, a gas powered vehicle that ran out of gas just as easily because it sounds like this guy is an idiot one way or the other, (laughs) no matter what he drives. And if he couldn't figure out how to get it into gear or it got locked up or whatever, that, also could happen to a traditional vehicle. So the whole, so whole thing could have have happened to any vehicle, not just a Tesla. Now, it is true that it's a little more difficult to uh, charge the vehicle up. I mean, if it had been a gas vehicle, you could just go to the nearest station with a gas can and at least you know be able to, to fill the tank. So it's a little bit different you know, with a, an electric vehicle in that respect, but... The point being, what an idiot to run to run his car to the point of the thing dying out. Although, to be fair, I've been in a few fast food drive through lanes where it seems like I burned off an entire tank of gas waiting to get through the line. So maybe he was fully charged when he pulled <laughs> pulled into the line. I don't know uh, how long the uh, <laughs> how long the whole thing took to get through the drive through lane, but. <laughs> Anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Some of the other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. Here is the thing that we are concerned about today. There's always got to be something to worry about, be concerned about, something, you know, to wring your hands over. Oh, my goodness, whatever, whatever are we going to do? And this is today's story. If you are on a Mediterranean diet, you know, the Mediterranean diet kick, if you are on that, You might want to be judicious with how much olive oil you use. That is because a months-long drought and sweltering temps in the Mediterranean region, especially Spain, have dried out olive trees. And as a result, olive oil prices are spiking and a looming shortage of the condiment is on the way. Yes, that's right. We could be looking at a global olive oil shortage. Uh, this is a report in the uh, online news website Quartz, citing statistics from the International Monetary Fund that put the worldwide price tag for olive oil at about $6,000 per metric ton. That is a level not seen since 1997, when the price hovered at around 6200 dollars per metric ton and in spain which is the top olive oil producer on the planet they churn out a million plus tons of the stuff every year in spain the most recent five-month olive harvest that ended in february eked out just half of what it usually yields so this is serious stuff especially for those on a mediterranean diet the driving factor Behind this crisis, exceedingly poor weather, um, according to one analyst in a report on CNBC. Uh, This analyst notes that olives thrive when the temperature is between 60 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And the weather conditions have been exceedingly poor. So there you go. We are in the midst of a looming olive oil shortage. So that is uh, what you need to be concerned about today. And if you're not concerned about that, then how about this? We have a bonus thing you need to be worried about story today. Astronomers have identified a cosmic explosion 100 times the size of our solar system. Let me repeat that. A cosmic explosion 100 times the size of our entire solar system. Boy, you talk about huge. The biggest cosmic explosion ever observed suddenly started blazing in the distant universe more than three years ago. And today, astronomers are offering what they believe is the most likely explanation. They say the explosion is the result of a vast gas cloud possibly thousands of times bigger than our sun that has been violently disrupted by a supermassive black hole. Well, that doesn't sound good, does it? 
the explosion took place nearly 8 billion light years away, which is why we're just now learning of it, even though it happened more than three years ago. So there you go. I don't know. Uh, the, the story doesn't say that there's anything that, that we should be worried about in our solar system. But I mean, if the universe is creating cosmic explosions 100 times bigger <laughs> than our solar system, that might be something we want to pay attention to, you know? Might be something we want to watch. And there's an olive oil shortage. Did you hear that? There's an olive oil global shortage. <clears throat> Although the that huge cosmic explosion does kind of put that into uh, perspective a little bit for you, doesn't it? I mean, all things considered, it could be much worse. <laughs> and finally... Among the things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, something for you to chew on here. Think about this, especially if you are a member of the millennial generation. Now, the first members of the millennial generation uh, were born in 1980. That's kind of the delineating line for millennials. Born in 1980, which means that they are turning 43 this year. The first millennials are turning 43 this year. And the reason that is significant, according to uh, Claire Ansberry in the Wall Street Journal, that just happens to be the average age that Americans stop feeling young. <laughs> uh, according to a survey by the Worldwide Independent Network of Market Research, age 43 is when you stop feeling young. So your experience may vary, but on average, 43 is when you stay. And that's how old the oldest millennials are this year. Now, the youngest members of the millennial generation have a while before they reach that potentially unwanted milestone. Uh, the youngest members of the millennial generation born in 1996 so that's kind of the age range of millennials, 1980, born between 1980 and 1996. But the oldest ones turning 40 this year. Um, and in this piece for the Wall Street Journal, Ms. Ansberry cites other research showing that the early 40s is when the typical American starts noticing the telltale signs of aging. Like when they uh, get the gray hair, uh, the uh, creaking joints, <laughs> those those sorts of things. And uh, that's where the millennials are right now. So welcome to the club, millennials. That's all I got to say. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. I'm Kate Burdett on the Ohio News Network. A Cleveland EMT is expected to be okay physically after she went missing for nearly a week. The family of Lachelle Jordan says she is hospitalized but in high spirits. Jordan's father, Joseph. When I first stepped up to something like this, I had one small request, and that was to bring my daughter home safely. Through the support of law enforcement, media, EMS, community, and everybody that wanted to be somebody, that request was granted. Her family says she was able to make it to safety by running away, but did not elaborate more. Jordan was supposed to testify in a rape trial last week. Ohio's Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown expected in East Palestine today to check in with local farmers after February's train derailment. And May 25th is Missing Children's Day. Students at a Central Ohio high school are spreading awareness. ONN's Gabriela Garcia has more with Canal Winchester student Amelia Lozier. They're part of an after-school youth trafficking coalition club, which put on a community event. I think it's an important program for everyone to get involved in and learn about, even if it's not through the Canal Winchester High School. Just educate yourselves and don't stand by and let human trafficking continue to be an ever-growing issue. Reporting in Columbus, Gabriela Garcia. I'm Kate Burdett on the Ohio News Network. So now our cover story this morning, we are joined by U.S. Senate candidate Matt Dolan, who made a campaign stop in Findlay on Friday of uh, last week. And uh, Mr. Dolan, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Our 
Thank Hope, you, Chris. Thanks hoping, for having me. Hoping to go from state senator to U.S. senator. Uh, and the Findlay stop that you made on Friday was... Uh, part of a number of stops that uh, that you made uh, last week in various parts of the state. Talk a little bit about uh, what uh, you, it wasn't like a public rally. It was a meeting with business leaders and law enforcement uh, at the uh, Chamber of Commerce. So talk a little bit about uh, that stop and, and what you learned, what you took away from uh, that conversation. Sure. Thanks. Well, yes, I, I was in Finley uh, for the second time in three weeks. Uh, this time I was there because a, a, a woman's group put together a nice luncheon of about 50 people, and we had a good conversation. Then I met with uh, some folks from the business area, law enforcement, and elected officials to go over, you know, as a U.S. senator, how I can be helpful uh, in Finley. And what, what you routinely hear is um, I am presenting myself as somebody who understands the challenges that our country is facing but I have, I want to go and solve the problems because I have a record of doing so. And this, uh, I've been in the state Senate and I've cut taxes. I've reduced regulations. I've helped farmers. I've helped military. I've helped law enforcement. Uh, we have, we have made sure that Ohio's become a business friendly state and a high quality, uh, of life for families. And Sherrod Brown just has a, has a record of 30 years of, producing a direction for our country that is not it makes us weak and we're seeing it today uh you know being fulfilled in the biden administration so i think that's what the message is and i think it's being well received you picked up a, a couple of uh, key endorsements local endorsements that may be of interest to local voters uh during your stop or, or shortly after your stop last week I did. Um, pre, I mean, I'm very proud to have the endorsement of several council folks, Grant Russell, the sheriff, your sheriff, Hellman, uh, and others. I think you just uh, wait and see what's going to happen. But I think it's because they recognize that uh, part of campaigning is not just about selling yourself to the voters. Mm -hmm. It's also about making sure you understand voters' concerns. And when you, when you get law, local uh, officials to endorse you, what they're saying is this is the person who understands the daily challenges that, that folks in Finley and other in Northwest Ohio are facing yeah. and is going to go to Washington and address those issues. As Republicans, we've got to focus on the issues that matter to families. When we do that, we win. You are uh, one of a handful of candidates who have jumped in this race early. There will certainly, almost certainly, be more candidates announced in the weeks and months to come. Why was it uh, important to you to get in uh, at this uh, early point uh, in a campaign that really, frankly, is, is not on a whole lot of people's radar yet? Well, uh, you know, early, it's like beauty, it's in the eyes of the beholder. So to put a, an aggressive, statewide campaign together, you need to have the time and effort to put a team together and have the time to go around the state uh, to do what I just said, is to uh, listen to the voters, understand mm -hmm. what, what they want done in Washington. There's also a very practical reason for me to get in. I am the finance chairman for the, for the Ohio State Senate, and we are, this is a budget year. So for the next six weeks, you know, I will be doing, spending a lot of time in Columbus writing the state budget. So we also knew that that time was going to be there. But again, that's time where I am impacting Ohio. So, you know, and let's not forget, this is a March primary next year. It's a little bit earlier than normal because it's right. a presidential year. Yeah. Um Speaking of which, uh, that has really gotten a lot of the national attention, the presidential uh, race. Uh, and, of course, uh, on the Republican side, President Trump uh, is the front runner to get uh, another nomination uh, for president. Speaking of endorsements, will you seek the uh, endorsement of uh, former President Trump uh, because he has been something of a lightning rod of controversy, to put it mildly, uh, for the GOP. And there have been a number of different strategies of down ballot candidates of how they handle uh, President Trump's presence uh, in the upcoming uh, election. 
Well, last time I checked, President Trump doesn't live in Ohio. So my focus is, is to earn the endorsement of Ohio voters so I can go to Washington and work with a Republican administration. If it's President Trump, if, uh, then I'll work with him. Whoever ends up being the Republican nominee, we need that person to win. I will support the nominee. We need to get the White House back. We need to get Congress back, including the Senate. Uh, and then do the things that are necessary to help Americans and Ohioans. That's my focus. It's always been my focus. So I am not concerned about folks outside of Ohio. I am concerned about inside of Ohio. And then, and then with that mantle of leadership that I hope that the Ohio voters give me, I will go to Washington, work with the Republican administration and solve our problems, get our debt under control, make America strong get energy independent again, cut taxes, cut regulations, limited government. I mean, that's what we need to focus on because when we do that as Republicans, so whatever the Republican nominee, I, that person needs to focus on those issues just like I am. So you are not necessarily concerned as some uh, uh, are that uh, uh, top of the ticket, uh, Donald Trump at the top of the ticket may uh, negatively impact those down ballot candidates. I mean, that's certainly one of the storylines, uh, again, nationally, not to uh, shift the focus to the, the national election, but it is a reality that uh, the candidate at the top of the ticket does have an impact on those down ballot candidates, such as those for U.S. Senate. Well, Chris, I'll let you be the pundit and uh, analyze you know, what, what's going to happen. I am remaining laser focused on my race. Fair enough. Solving the problems that are confronting our country. Fair enough. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, your decision to run in this election. As uh, folks know, you were among a large field of candidates who were hoping to succeed Rob Portman in the last election. And obviously that that, that did not turn out uh, the way you had hoped. What did you take away from that uh, campaign? What did you learn from that campaign that makes you confident that you can become not only become the nominee, uh, but also unseat uh, Sherrod Brown, who, even though Ohio has become a reliably red state over the past several election cycles, Sherrod Brown has proven to be a very venerable uh, candidate um, that has not been easy to uh, defeat. He hasn't. And it starts with making sure the Republicans nominate me uh, as their, as their uh, Republican candidate, because very practical reasons. Uh, I am a Republican state Senator from Cuyahoga County. That's where Sheriff Brown lives. Mm -hmm. That's where he usually rolls up a big vote. I can cut right into his vote total. I can, I can go into areas where, independents tend to, to, to support Brown because he pretends like he's a moderate every five and a half years when he comes up for election, I can cut right into that. But the decision to run is based on three, you know, you know, practical things is look, I'm not running because I ran last time, but because I ran last time, I'm building on the, the, the notion that voters want somebody to be a problem solver. And I think that's what they started seeing at the end of the race that I am somebody who was new to the statewide scene, took a while for people to understand who I was. But once they did, they realized this guy solves problems. Two things happened after the 22 uh, primary that made me want to run again. One is November 22 is when Republicans did not win the majority because we didn't run on the, with the right messengers or the right message. And that right message has to be looking forward, has to be what families want to hear. And then the second was in November of 22, I heard Sherrod Brown on national TV essentially ignore the border crisis, not even recognizing it, saying it's only a far right voters that are talking about the border. And I knew right then and then we're not going to solve problems if Sherrod Brown gets back into Washington. You know, he has just been there for over 40 years and we're confronting some of the same issues and he does not want the voter to look at his voting record. When he votes against border uh, supporting border police, he votes against law enforcement. He votes to raise our taxes. He wants to pack the Supreme Court. He wants to get rid of the filibuster uh, so that more radical agendas can be pushed through. These are things that Ohioans do not want, and these are things that are not great for the direction of our country. I can beat Chair Brown. 
But equally as important, when I get to Washington, I can accomplish the goals that we all want to see finished. A very confident Matt Dolan, uh, who, as we said, made a campaign stop uh, in Findlay, <coughs> excuse me, last week uh, in his effort to unseat Sherrod Brown in the uh, upcoming Senate race. Mr. Dolan, thanks very much for uh, taking the time uh, this morning. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate your time. Look forward to meeting you in person. You know, we often hear the pleas for blood donors to meet the needs of surgery patients or victims of accidents or natural disasters. But there is also a critical and ongoing need for plasma donors for an equally important reason. And joining us this morning to talk more about this is Dr. Toby Simon, Senior Medical and Safety Advisor for Global Clinical Safety at CSL Plasma, and Michelle Pecoraro, a patient living with a condition known as hereditary angioedema, and uh, Dr. Simon, let me start with you. Why is donating plasma important? Again, we often hear about blood donation. Why is donating plasma important? Well, as a physician who's treated patients with plasma-derived therapies, I'm well aware of the large number of patients and the many conditions that require treatment with a therapy that's made from donated plasma from healthy donors. And this includes individuals with inherited, often rare diseases, where they're lacking a substance or a protein through inheritance that we can provide by concentrating from the plasma donations and allows them to live a normal life and it sustains life. But also, sometimes these treatments are life-saving as well, and they're also used in the intensive care unit with acutely ill patients. So we need the plasma donations to make the therapies for bleeding disorders, neurological disorders, immunodeficiency where patients don't have the antibodies that are normally inherited. So these are important conditions and the plasma is really critical for life-sustaining and life-saving treatment. So, and, and this is uh, this is used uh, in the laboratory to develop these treatments, right? We're not talking about a, a direct transfusion. Correct. Unlike the blood transfusion situation, the plasma is pooled from large number of donors at a manufacturing, a fractionation plant, and then it's it's what we call fractionated into the different parts Mm. to give us the many different therapies. But just like blood donations, there there's no substitute. I mean, uh, human plasma is what it is, and there's no sort of synthetic uh, substitute for that. Correct. You know, for many of the treatments, the only way that we can treat the disease is from a plasma-derived therapy. Now, Michelle, uh, I want to get kind of a real-world example here. Tell us a little bit about uh, living with hereditary angioedema and why plasma donations are important to you. Well, in my case, hereditary angioedema is just that. It is an inherited condition that I inherited from my father and my child in turn inherited from me. So it is a family disorder. Um, and what it means is that we are missing a critical protein in our blood. So we suffer from severe catastrophic bouts of swelling. Anywhere that blood flows in our body, we can have these attacks. Um, and those attacks can, if they're in our extremities, our hands, our feet, or our stomach, they can cause severe pain or, or discomfort or inconveniences. If it involves our face, then it becomes more life-threatening. And then if it is in our airway, it can be fatal, mm. uh, which was the case of my father. He actually passed away from an attack in the years prior to any therapies being available here in the state. Wow. Um, and then I traveled that journey as well, uh, trying to get diagnosed and get on therapies once they became approved. So those plasma donations to my family not only mean that we are able to take what we're missing from those donations, they provide that missing protein and we're able to inject that twice a week into our, in our, under our skin. Um, and not only treat those attacks that spontaneously occur, but in the case of my therapy, I'm able to potentially prevent those from happening altogether. So as a patient, and more importantly as a mom, those donations are important to me because not only am I able to care for myself, um, but also the fear is alleviated uh, of these potentially fatal, these, these fatal attacks that can come with these untreated conditions so it impacts not only me and my family but countless others 
Now, Dr. Simon, uh, who can donate plasma? What are the requirements? Well, a healthy individual between the ages of 18 and 65 weighs at least 110 pounds and has not had a tattoo or a piercing in the last four months uh, will generally be able to donate. We have some additional requirements that we do a health assessment uh, before donation to make sure it's safe for the donor. But for the most part, most healthy adults can donate. And how does that donation process work? We use a process called apheresis, so it's different than giving a whole blood donation. So the individual has a venipuncture, and then the blood goes through sterile supplies into a, a, a piece of equipment which centrifuges the blood. The red cells are then returned to the donor, so the donor doesn't become anemic or iron deficient. We retain the plasma for the further manufacturing into these therapies, and then we provide a saline infusion at the end to restore the blood volume of the donor. And under these circumstances, the individual can donate up to twice per week. Much more often than than uh, regular uh, blood donation. Yes, and it, it, the amount we remove is based on weight, and it's a very safe procedure. Now, Michelle, what would your message be to others to sort of motivate them to consider donating plasma? Well, as a patient and as a mom, I know that anytime you hear that needles are involved, that that can cause some apprehension. Sure. Um, so I would encourage them to check the website uh, that there is available to CSLplasma.com or go and visit one of the local CSL Plasma Donation Centers, um, you know, that, that would help to alleviate some of those fears. But if they're on the fence on whether or not this is something that they would want to do, I would hope that they would remember this interview and remember this patient and this mom and know that for them to take just a small amount of their time means all, literally means the difference in a life or death situation for patients like me and my child. I uh, always uh, am reminded of that uh, that turn of phrase there, but for the grace of God go I, and uh, you know, it's something that exactly. we can we can all relate to, uh, especially when you talk about uh, your concern, not just for yourself, but even beyond yourself for your child, even more so for your child than, than for yourself. I think that's something that every parent can relate to. Again, Dr. Toby Simon, Senior Medical and Safety Advisor for Global Clinical Safety at CSL Plasma. Uh, Michelle Pecoraro, uh, patient living with uh, hereditary angio edema uh, treated through uh, therapies developed using human plaza thank you both for taking the time this morning we appreciate it thank you thank you we interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert an eight-year-old boy in uh or i'm sorry an 18 year eight-year-old girl in uh alpena county um michigan fought off, this is a cool story, fought off her would-be kidnapper uh, on Wednesday, and her older brother shot the suspect with a slingshot, according to police report. <laughs> that is all kinds of awesome. According to a report in the Detroit News, the preliminary investigation says an eight-year-old girl was hunting for mushrooms in the backyard of her home when an unknown man came out of the woods and tried to kidnap her. The man held the girl's mouth shut and a struggle ensued. The girl managed to break free. Her 14-year-old brother saw the incident happening in the backyard, grabbed grabbed his slingshot, and shot the suspect in the head and the chest. <laughs> that is all kinds of awesome. <laughs> Gra- grabbed the slingshot and boom. There you go. <clears throat> kind of a David and Goliath story there. Glad everything uh, came out okay. That could have had a very different ending, but cool. Uh, Let's see. Elsewhere in the broken news, the odd and unusual side of the headlines, a man in Minnesota has come up with a new alternative fuel vehicle. Now, this is one, and I know that, you know, like electric vehicles and all of that uh, are rather controversial. Not everyone is sold on the idea of electrifying uh, our, our vehicle fleet. And so on. But I think this is an alternative fuel vehicle that we can all get behind. It is a motorcycle that runs on beer. That's right. Kai Michelson said his beer powered bike um, 
He created it in a garage in a Minneapolis suburb, has a 14-gallon keg with a heating coil instead of a gas-powered engine. The coil heats the beer to 300 degrees, and then superheated steam in the in the that is created propels the bicycle. Now, why this has to be beer and not water, I'm not sure. Because it seems like that would be a waste of perfectly good beer when water would do just as well. But Mr. Michelson says he's not a drinker, so he can't think of any better use for beer than to run his bicycle. That being said, I mean, a gallon of beer is probably actually more expensive than a gallon of gasoline, but at least it is uh, more plentifully uh, available. Now, whether this invention actually sees the light of day beyond the prototype that he's created is doubtful. This is the same man who invented a jet-powered coffee pot and a rocket-powered toilet. So, (laughs) and we don't have either of those in any of our homes, so his track record is not necessarily the best. I'd be interested in learning more about that rocket-powered toilet. I'm a little curious about that and a little scared by it. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> beer-powered motorcycle. A woman in New Jersey got the shock of her life on Friday morning. She found that her uh, her bank balance was in the red by almost $100 billion. That's right. She woke up to find her bank balance, that her bank account had been overdrawn by some $100 billion. Patricia Conlon tried to call the Chase Bank branch that she does her banking at. Uh, When she called, she received an explanation that involved her late husband. One of the people I spoke to mumbled something about a deceased account holder, according to Ms. Conlon. Uh, Her husband passed away a couple of months ago, so it is unclear how this resulted in a $100 billion overdraft. I'm guessing, what, maybe somebody got a hold of of her card or or something like that, but how does does an account go $100 billion overdrawn? I mean, at some point, you would think that the bank would uh, say, wait a minute, (laughs) I... I think maybe we've got a problem here, but they let it somehow go to $100 billion in the red. Uh, Chase, to their credit, did fix the $99 billion overdraft error within a few hours. So $99 billion and some change was actually overdrawn, and they fixed the error. (laughs) Because I'm thinking that that's pretty obvious. I mean, I understand that when... You dispute a charge, you know, you, you kind of have to document the fact that because I've done that in my bank account before, uh, I've had my credit card number get compromised somehow and uh, I was charged for something that I did not buy. But you would then so you have to go through a rigmarole and they investigate and they determine whether they believe or not you actually did not charge what you claim you did not charge. So they don't just take your word for it generally. But I would think if your account is overdrawn to the tune of $100 billion, you probably don't have to do much in the way of proof. You know what I mean? That's How do we know you didn't charge $100 billion on your card? Uh, we've had stories of strange vehicles being carjacked before, but this one may be one of the most unusual. A Maryland man by the name of Michael Stevens is now facing charges of motor vehicle theft and two counts of first-degree assault after reportedly stealing a five-ton military cargo truck. A five-ton military cargo truck and then leading officers on a wild joyride. Mr. Stevens faces multiple charges after reportedly taking the vehicle from a private residence and heading down an interstate highway. Uh, Police claim that Mr. Stevens drove the truck from Bel Air, Maryland, all the way to Baltimore, then fled the vehicle on foot and was apprehended by officers 
in a nearby woods, I guess, uh, authorities said that while Mr. Stevens crashed into multiple civilian vehicles, no one, thankfully, was injured. But <laughs> I've said it before, and I will say it again. If you... <laughs> Uh, if you're going to steal a vehicle, you probably should make it something inconspicuous and, you know, something that will not, uh, will not, uh, gather a whole lot of, uh, interest. You know what I mean? Is it will not uh, grab a whole lot of attention. A five ton military cargo truck is not that. So. <clears throat> little word of advice for anyone considering a life of crime. And finally, the broken news this morning. <laughs> a Texas woman is uh, in trouble with the law, accused of using a seatbelt to tie her son to the side of her car and drag him down the highway to punish him for his misbehavior. <laughs> Not a candidate for mom of the year here. According to court documents, a video that a witness sent to the Archer County Sheriff's Office uh, back on May 2nd shows the boy outside the car with a seatbelt wrapped around him. He is forced to run alongside the car as his mother alternately slams on the brakes and then speeds up. One part of the video shows the boy hanging onto the side of the car trying not to fall. His mother was arrested based on the video. His mother was arrested later that day and charged with child endangerment. She has been released on bond. And I believe the uh, the boy is fine. Thank goodness. That could have ended very differently. But hey, this is Texas. We do things differently down here. <laughs> wow. Not a candidate for mother of the year. There you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Ever wonder what being a Finley Rotarian is all about? I'm Angela Dabosky, CEO of the United Way of Hancock County. Being a Rotarian offers meaningful connections with community leaders and to what's going on in organizations across Hancock County. To become part of an organization that brings together business, professional leaders to provide community service and advance goodwill, all part of a worldwide service club, contact Findlay Rotary at FindlayRotary.org and click on join. This message provided by WFIN. Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Sunday, of course, yesterday was Mother's Day, um, the, the time that we, we all try to pay back our moms, or at least try to, uh, with something nice uh, to say thank you for everything that they've done for us over the years. And uh, with that, the National Retail Federation uh, estimates that Americans... Digging very deep this year, spending a record $35.7 billion on Dear Old Mom. 35.7, that's according to survey data from more than 8,300 consumers compiled by the NRF. That is nearly $4 billion more than last year's record high. So... And continue to spend more and more. $4 billion more than last year, and last year was a record. It works out to, on average, $274.02 per person, which is another record, as you might expect. If the total was a record, then you would figure that the individual spending would be a record as well. Of that figure, and I'm breaking it down further, $7.8 billion spent on jewelry, $5.6 billion on special outings like dinners or spa treatments. $4 billion on electronics, which I thought was kind of interesting. 74% of those in the survey, 74% said that they were going to get mom flowers and greeting cards. 60% said that they were spending on special outings, again, like dinner or a day at the spa, something like that. In total, 84% of respondents said that they planned to celebrate the big day on uh, on Sunday, this past Sunday, Mother's Day. 84%. Now, I don't know how many in that survey um, have mothers that are no longer around. I would assume that 
in order to be counted in the survey, your mom would have to be still living. Uh, so 84% of, I want to know who are the 16% that said that they are not observing Mother's Day. And if your mom is still with us, what, what would be your excuse for skipping Mother's Day? So, of course, we are coming up on summer vacation season, as we all know. And if you are looking to travel without breaking the bank, which appears to be the trend uh, for the summer of 2023, travel demand is still very high, but most people are being very cost conscious uh, during the uh, summer vacation travel season, making sure that they uh, don't go over budget and maybe setting that budget a little bit lower. There are different ways of bringing travel uh, back within budget. Maybe you're not traveling as far, or maybe you're looking for uh, cheaper alternatives in terms of your accommodation. Uh, obviously, when it comes to traveling without breaking the bank on someplace to stay, Airbnb offers some great options, as we all know. And to highlight that affordability, the platform is highlighting their redesigned Airbnb Rooms experience, which was just launched earlier this month. And joining us this morning are Rendezvous and Eric Allen, who host a private room in their home in Los Angeles. As tell us uh, how you got started and what it's like being a host on Airbnb. Well... We love being hosts. We find it very rewarding personally, not just financially, but it's um, genuinely meaningful. We're hosty people. <laughs> <laughs> we like to open our home and we like meeting people from around the world. Mm -hmm. um, how we got started, uh, we're empty nesters and it was too quiet for me. <laughs> and we have this back wing of our house where our kids used to live. And Rhonda came to me and she was like, I only try hosting on Airbnb. And so I said, yeah, okay, whatever you want. Um, and that's how we started. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the big trends right now is experiential travel, being able to kind of take in a destination as a local. And you say that hosting the way you do with a private room has allowed you to create meaningful experiences for your guests. And Eric, as you were alluding to, uh, creating meaningful experiences for yourselves as well. Yeah. I mean, we enjoy sort of being concierge, like actually we also have a guide that's posted on our Airbnb listing hmm. that lists all our favorite restaurants and we're really into architecture. So it highlights um, a lot of important architectural sites in Los Angeles. And I think I just really enjoy when our guests are interested um, opening up our city um, and letting them know how to have the best time they can in Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, it's uh, so much more than just, uh, you know, the Walk of Fame and the Hollywood sign in L.A. There's so much uh, to do. You wouldn't you wouldn't be able to experience it all unless you have, you know, some sort of guidance from somebody who knows their way around. I think so. We're both from L.A., which is a rare thing. Yeah. <laughs> so we've seen lots of change. Uh, so, so Rhonda, when you, when you started this hosting adventure, it, it sounds like it wasn't so much for the money, uh, that was, uh, kind of just a bonus, but what are the financial benefits of hosting and what tips would you be able to offer for others who are looking to do the same? Uh, start out slowly and you can block off days to give yourself a break See if it's for you to open your doors to, to other people. And uh, that's what we did. And um, so fin Financially, Rhonda likes to say, we make money while we sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to admit, that is a good way to make some money. <laughs> so, you know, the money is great. The experience of hosting is even 
better. Not that you can stay at our house for free. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, this was just announced in the past few days, the uh, Airbnb 2023 summer release. Eric, what is that and what are some of the new upgrades across the Airbnb platform? Right. So we just found out about this upgrade ourselves a couple of days ago. It all sounds pretty smart. I know there are many more features than the ones that caught my attention. So there's this new button at the top of the website where guests can go and sort of filter out other listings. So the the button is called Rooms. And if you're interested in booking a private room and house like ours, you click on that button and then the listings are for those private rooms. Mm -hmm. I think it makes it easier for guests to find us because they don't have to search through listings that aren't like ours. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to rent a whole house. Mm-hmm. You're interested in renting a room. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that's also interesting is they they started this new thing for guests called um, host passport. So guests can like easily see who we are, who hosts are. And it tells you about our interests specifically or other host interests. So we're into architecture and design. We're foodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so if people want to connect about that stuff, it's easier for them to find yeah, a, a good match. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so where would someone, if somebody's interested in hosting, uh, where would we go and get more information on getting started? Sure. I mean, just go to the website. If that's how we started, Airbnb.com. They also have an app that you can use. And they make it pretty easy to join as a host. Um there's also a lot of resources that a new host can use. There are a lot of articles on the website. If you have any questions, you can reach out to Airbnb directly. And then there are also host groups that provide support too. So a lot of resources to help folks if they want to uh, become hosts. And of course, for anyone looking to book a space, either a private room or a, uh, a whole place, uh, what have you. Uh, again, a uh, lot of new features there uh, on the uh, Airbnb platform. Rendezvous and Eric Allen with us this morning. Airbnb hosts of a private room at their home in L.A. Thank you both for uh, taking the time this morning. We certainly appreciate it. Great talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage, that of course, goodmornings.net. You can also connect with us on social media. Shoot us an email if there's something you want to share directly. Sign up for our daily email newsletter and lots more. Again, goodmornings.net. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.